Well, we are celebrating Holy Week. We're going to take a break from our series in Revelation. And as we've studied through that book, we, there's a time coming that there's going to be a complete upheaval and judgment coming on the earth. Now, what's that have to do with today and this week? Well, this week in history, which we call Holy Week, culminates with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that means our faith and belief and acceptance of that fact is the sole event that determines where we're going to be when that judgment happens. We're either going to be here for that if we've rejected Christ or we will be in heaven with Christ avoiding all of it. And what each of us decide, whether it's today or in the past or in the future, what you decide about Jesus and his resurrection is going to determine where you're going to stand during that time of judgment and where you're going to be after you die. Resurrection Day, we call it Easter, is the single most significant day in human history, bar none. Now, that's kind of a broad statement, but it's the truth. What happened 2,000 years ago, look at the effect it's had for the past 2,000 years and even till today. The effect of lives changed because of what Christ did. Now, we're going to see today what happened on Palm Sunday and what it means to the believer, each one of us today. The last week of Jesus' life on earth is spelled out in great detail, and it's, a, it's covered through all four of the Gospels, little snippets here and there. You put them all together, you have the entire story. Today is the day we celebrate the first day of the last week of Jesus' life. How many would like to know when you're going to die? I don't know if I'd like to know that. And how would you like to know that this is the last week you're going to be alive? What would you do differently? I think a lot of us would do a lot of things differently if you knew that this week was the last week that you're going to be here. I kind of think we probably wouldn't work that week. We would probably be with our family and our friends and everybody else and try to do everything right for this last week. Well, that's how we should live every day. Because we don't know. That 24-year-old quarterback had no idea. People die every day. We don't know. But we need to be prepared for that day. And this week gives us hope that it's not just the last thing. So it's Palm Sunday. Why do we call it Palm Sunday? Because we take it from John 12, 12, and Anna read it. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. That's the verse that Anna read earlier, which I've been trying to get her to preach on a Sunday morning. How many would like might want to see that? She's, she's always reluctant to do that. So if you see her today, put that bug in her ear. Don't tell her I said anything, but just say, hey, you know, the Lord told me. She needs some encouragement. Well, Palm Sunday is the day that signifies Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. The week that began with a celebration ended with a crucifixion. And here's a brief synopsis of what will transpire during this week. Sunday, Palm Sunday, he enters into Jerusalem and he cries over the city. 
Monday, he curses the fig tree and he cleanses the temple. In other words, he's tossing the tables over, kicking out the money changers. Tuesday, he comes back and sees the withered fig tree and confronts the Jewish leaders, and then he goes to the Mount of Olives. In all four of the Gospels, there's nothing on record for what happened on Wednesday. Thursday comes, he is now prepping for the Passover. Friday is actually the Passover, the trial, crucifixion, death, and burial of Jesus. Saturday, Jesus is in the tomb, and Sunday, Jesus is raised from the dead. This is one of the few events that is recorded in all the Gospels, so we're going to be pulling texts from all of them so we can see in a complete account of that. We'll read a chronological account of the triumphal entry so we can see the whole picture at one time, and then we'll kind of break it down. Now, previously, up to this point, Jesus had a private dinner with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. In John 12, it says, six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. And that raising of, the Lazar of raising of Lazarus had officially started the Jewish leader's plot to kill him. Do you ever, you ever, somebody raises somebody from the dead, and your first instinct is to kill that person? John eleven forty five 45 says, right after the, Lazarus was raised, it says, therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the, thief, the chief priests and Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. John eleven fifty three. 53, so from that day on they plotted to take his life. Now you had a whole group of people actually see someone raised from the dead. Some of them believed. Some of them didn't believe. How that's possible, I don't, I don't understand. But it tells us that miracles in themselves don't cause people to come to faith. They are symbols of God's power to encourage you to come to faith. The miracle themselves doesn't. I wrote down here, if you're waiting to see a miracle before you trust Jesus, you won't believe one even if you see it. Matthew 12, 38 says, Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miracle from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. You know what the sign of the prophet Jonah is? Jesus spending three days in the grave and then rising again. You want a, you want a miracle? That's your miracle. Jesus' resurrection, that's the miracle you want to see? If you don't believe that, nothing else is going to convince you. So let's look at this day verse by verse. Matthew 21, 1 says, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. Jesus knew how the week was going to go before he even walked in. And so he made arrangements in advance for the donkey to be ready for him and for the dinner to be ready for him as well. Now, we know that the word was out that the chief priest wanted to kill Jesus, and everyone was required to turn him in if they saw him. And so Jesus kind of did this on the down low. He arranged for the donkey to be ready before any of this happened. John eleven fifty seven 57 says, 
Meanwhile, the leading priests and Pharisees had publicly announced that anyone seeing Jesus must report him immediately so they can arrest him. Jesus didn't want the guy with the donkey to get in trouble, so he arranged beforehand for this to happen. Now, we think of a donkey today as a lowly animal, but in Bible times, donkeys were used for royalty. 1 Kings 1.44 says the king had sent him Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, the Carathites and the Pelathites, and they put him on the king's mule. Judges 5.10, you who ride on fine donkeys and sit on fancy saddle blankets. Listen. So donkeys weren't the lowly animal we think of today. They were, they were used for royalty. So when Jesus comes in on a donkey, the town knew that was a symbol of royalty. Donkeys also symbolized peace, whereas we think horses are that way. Horses in the Bible are most accompanied by war. If you look at the horses of color in Revelation, the 12 horsemen of the apocalypse, Jesus is riding a symbol of peace and royalty, not of war. Now, word had gotten out that Jesus was heading towards town in John 12. It says, the next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. This is the only time that Jesus allowed public displays of affection and adoration to be made toward him. Verse 13 says, they took palm branches, went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. This is the only time that Jesus did not tell them to not do that. So why was he doing it? Why was he accepting it now instead of all the other times? Because he was fulfilling the prophecy written about him in Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9. And Matthew basically repeats what Zechariah says in Matthew 21. Verse 4 says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. Say to the daughter of Zion, see, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, notice it was a donkey that was supposed to have never been ridden. Any, anybody ever ride an unbroken donkey? <laughs> or an unbroken mule or an unbroken horse, a wild horse? How many have ever been to the Outer Banks? Down in Corolla, they have those that wild horses that run on the beach. I defy anybody to try to ride one of those things. <laughs> you can't even catch them, let alone ride them. So you have a mule that's never been ridden before, untrained, unbroken, and yet Jesus was riding on him very calmly. Jesus not only had power over the wind and the waves, but he had power over animals as well. We were back in Pittsburgh. A friend of mine raised and trained horses. He used to do barrel racing, and we would have outreaches during the barrel race. He'd have a, he had a farm, and he would have barrel racing and bring other horse people in, and we would have like a little message for him. And he did a lot of work with his horses, and it was impressive to see how he was able to, to train an unbroken horse. But it took a long time to do that. The way the donkey was perfectly calm and allowed Jesus to ride him tells us that Jesus had power over the animals as well as the waves. Remember Jesus calmed the storm, Matthew 8, 27? It says, the, main, the men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and waves obey him. So Jesus is now walking through the town or on the donkey crawling, walking through town. Who was there to meet him? Matthew 21 tells us, 
when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowd answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, this crowd that was there, they were consisted of three different groups of people. The three groups, the first group was, these are the Passover visitors from outside Judea. John 12, 12 says, the next day, the news that Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem swept through the city. A huge crowd of Passover visitors took palm branches, went down to the road to meet him. They shouted, praise God, bless the one who comes in the name of the Lord, hail to the king of Israel. The second group was the local people who had actually witnessed the raising of Lazarus. John 12, 17 says, now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. Now, I mentioned earlier that miracles don't save anyone, but they do provide an incentive for people to come and see. We pray every week, usually up front, prayers for needs, prayer for healing, prayer for miracles. That cross is full of requests that we're trusting God to do. Why do we do that? Because we want God's power to move in this service, not only for us, so that people in the community say, hey, Something's happening at Dover Assembly. I want to see what that is. And it brings them in. They hear about what God's doing in a miraculous way. That brings them in. That allows them to hear the gospel. And then God can do what he really wants to do is save them. So that's why we pray and we believe that God does miracles. It's an incentive for people to come and see what God's doing. These people who saw and heard about Lazarus, they came out to meet him. Who is this guy that raised someone from the dead? I want to meet who he is. We believe that God still does miracles. We believe in God answers prayer, and we believe that God uses all of that to bring people to a closer relationship with him. And the third group that was there were the religious leaders who sought to kill Jesus, John 12, 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. So Jesus, by riding a donkey in a processional and having people lay their coats in front of him and palm branches in front of him, was basically, he was accepting the worship of a king. This is what a king would do when he walked into a town, maybe after a battle or some kind of parade. This is what the public would do to a king. And when Jesus was accepting that, he was telling them, yes, I'm the king you've been waiting for, which is why the Pharisees were upset, why the Romans were upset, because they thought this is going to be trouble for us. Now, all three of these groups had a different response to the announcement. I used to think, and I've said this before, and I, I'm going to correct myself. The same people that shouted, blessed be the name of the Lord, I used to think were the same people that shouted, crucify him. But they're not. That's two different, or three different groups and two different responses. The Galilean Jews were the ones who supported him. They're the ones who followed him. They're the ones who laid branches down for them. They were the ones that were shouting Hosanna. These were the committed followers of him. And then you have the Judean and Jerusalem Jews. And these were the ones who would later shout, crucify him. They thought as a king, he was going to overthrow the Roman government. And when he didn't, they said, well, they turned around and walked away because they didn't get what they wanted. So these are the ones who were shouting, crucify him, because, well, if he's not going to overthrow Rome, then what good is he? Crucify him. Three, the Jewish leaders saw their power base eroding. If he was the king and the people were going to follow him, 
and not them. So those are the last two groups are the ones that were shot and crucify him. Luke 19.39 says, Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he said, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. So the Galilean Jews were the ones who were his disciples shouting, praise the Lord. The other two groups were, were the ones that are going to be shouting later, crucify him. John 12, 19 again. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. The leaders knew that their power and authority would be challenged, if not stripped from them, if he continued to live. So they needed their opposition eliminated. And as all this was happening, people still didn't understand what was going on or that it was supposed to happen this way. John 12, 16, at first his disciples did not understand this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. This verse tells us that, that John's gospel and all the gospels were actually written after all of this happened. So they're looking back on it, so they're able to look back with 20-20 hindsight and see what happened. But at the time it was happening, they had no clue what was going on. They didn't, they didn't get it. And as an unbeliever, even me as an unbeliever, I don't understand what goes on in church or other Christians' lives. But once I got saved, I understood. The people in the crowd didn't get it. But only after they saw Jesus' resurrected body did they really fully get it. I went to church for three years, not saved. Everyone thought I was a Christian, but I wasn't. I didn't understand anything that went on. And every time there was a message, I thought someone should set that guy up. But as soon as I gave my life to Christ, the light bulb went on. You may attend a church like this one or this one, and you may not understand what's going on. But once you get into God's word and God opens your heart and your mind, you see, you understand what the Bible says. The people in the crowd didn't get it until they saw his resurrected body. You're not going to understand biblical things until you let Jesus come in and translate it for you. When I was in college, I started reading the Bible just because someone gave it to me. And I started reading it, and I got about three chapters into Genesis, and I said, I don't get this. I closed it and put it away and didn't touch it again for, what, 12 or 13 years. You might not understand everything, but God's word and the Holy Spirit will help you understand things of God if you allow him to do that. I'm going to focus on the next event for a little bit. We all know the, pe the, the parade in the town, but we do miss some of the other things that go on. John doesn't record this, but the other, other gospels do. In Mark 11, it says, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. So you get the picture of the Jesus walking into town. He sees the temple, walks up to the temple, and he spent some time looking at it. And he's thinking about it. You ever just stop and think about something for a while? Maybe look at something? When you have young kids and they're sleeping in their beds, don't you walk in their door and you kind of look at them sleeping so peacefully in their beds and hoping they stay asleep for a long time so you can sleep in the next morning? You pray for them when they're sleeping. 
You wonder what their life is going to be like when they're adults. We took the, the crew to Shady Maple yesterday in Lincoln. He's four. And uh, he wants to pray for stuff now. I'm like, yes. So I said, Link, you want to pray for, for breakfast? And he closes his eyes, squints his eyes up. And I want to close my eyes, but I can't. I want to watch him while he prays, you know. And you, you see Jesus looking at the temple going, what could have been? What could have been? Now Luke's account records the same event, but he says it a little bit differently. Verse 41 in Luke 19 says, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Why do you think he was crying about the city? Well, the Bible tells us why. In Luke 19, 42, it says, talking to the temple, he says, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. You ever look at the choices that someone makes and you can pretty much tell what's going to happen to them because of these choices. If they get into drugs or alcohol, whatever, they get really into it. You know if they don't stop what's going to happen. Jesus was at that point. He knew about what's going to happen. The inevitability of the Rome burning down the temple was going to happen in 70 AD. He knew it. Jesus knew the city. He knew the people that were there. He was sent to love them and encourage them and bless them, and yet they rejected him. And he knew what that was going to mean for them. And now he's crying about it. It's only the second time he cries, the first time he cried when Lazarus died. Why? Because everywhere he looked, he had cause to cry. When he looked back, he saw all the wasted chances that the Jews had for a blessing. You ever look back in your life and see times that may have been wasted? Wish you can go back and just do it again? Do it differently? Have a do-over? God had given them so many chances and they ignored every single one of them. God gives everyone a chance. If you're still breathing, the Bible says that's a chance for you. I got saved when I was 30. I wish that I got saved when I was 10. But I didn't. So coming in at 30, I had a lot of baggage behind me. I wish I could have changed, but I can't. But I'm glad I didn't get saved at 60. <laughs> and I said, today's the day of salvation. Whatever's behind you is behind you. Can't change it. But don't waste what you have now. <laughs> don't waste the opportunity God's given you now. God's given everyone a chance. We read the scripture this morning. God is long-suffering, not wanting any to perish, everyone to come to repentance, everyone. You know, you pray something, the Bible says, if you pray according to my will, it'll be done for you. Well, God's will is to everyone be saved. So you pray for them that God saves them. And God will work in your life, and he will continue to work in your life. He is long-suffering. But the long-suffering will have an end to it. The Bible says that no one comes to God unless the Spirit of God draws him. The Bible also says that my spirit will not always strive with men. 
In other words, God will draw you and draw you and draw you and nag you and wake you up at night. But there's going to come a point that after you reject that so many times, God's going to say, okay, not going to do it anymore. They've made their choice. I am not going to draw them. And do you know what that means? That means you won't get saved. So if you feel that nudge in your heart and your spirit, the Bible says that's for today because it might not be for tomorrow. So we look back. Now he looked at the present. He cried because he saw the hardness of the people's hearts at this moment. He performed all those miracles, and yet people still didn't believe. There's a whole lot of religious activity going on at that time, but not a lot of spiritual growth and no change. Just like today, there's a lot of churches and a lot of religious activity going on, but not a lot of transformation of lives. Things that aren't being accomplished for eternity. We're having VBS coming up, which, wow, it's in two months. We do VBS because we want it to have an eternal impact on their life. Not just a great time for a few days. It has to, for it to be beneficial, it has to have an eternal impact on their life. Something that they remember, something that God uses to transform their life at the age of five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. You know, it's possible to get saved at five and still serve God all your life. That's the way to do it. Not have all that crap behind you bringing it in. Serve God when you're five throughout the rest of your life. That's the way to do it. That's why we reach kids. I read the statistic, I think I said it last week, 85% of people who come to know Christ do it before they're 18 years old because they're still open to truth. 15% after 18 because you get hard-hearted and you're made up your mind and become stiff-necked. We know people that no matter how many times God blesses them and does great things for them, they still don't acknowledge that. I mean, we look around at our country, as, as uh, Yvonne said, we're not being bombed. And even at 9-11, it was contained in one area. It's not the entire country. <laughs> it's being bombed out. We look at the goodness of God that has blessed this country, and we still ignore God. Just like Israel. <laughs> Every time God blessed them, they forgot God. And what did God do to get their attention? Sent bad things their way. And I'm beginning to see a lot of bad things coming our way. Hopefully God uses that to save people. But you don't know. Hebrews 3, 7 says, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. It makes you cry because you know what people are missing out on right now. How many enjoy being a Christian? Think Christian, good being a Christian? Like being a Christian now? Right. Would you want to go back and do it the way you did it before? That's what other people are missing when they don't know Christ and you kind of get sad for them because, man, they're missing out on the blessings that come from knowing God. The peace and the comfort that comes even in difficult times. God gives you that ability to go through that. And they're missing out on it and that's why Jesus was crying at the present time. And when Jesus is looking ahead, he knew, he knew the judgment that was coming on them. 
Going back to our study in Revelation, we know what's going to happen. All the family and friends that we're praying for, we know what's going to happen if they don't believe by that time. And how about you, but it makes me cry. It really makes me sad. I asked the question, how many of us have really cried about the state of people that we know? Maybe the state of the world, the state of our government, the state of the currency, the leader, the religion, military. It scares me to death for those who are going to be here during that time. Jesus had a heart for the people that were there even though those were the ones that crucified him. He even said, Lord, don't hold this against them. They don't know what they're doing. Do we have that same heart when it comes to eternity? He's crying over the people that are going to shout later, crucify him. And he cried over them because they weren't saved. But the good news is the story doesn't end with the suffering and the crucifixion. Jesus took all the punishment and suffering. So what? We don't have to. The Bible says the wage of the sin is death. If you've sinned one time, you're in line for eternal punishment. But the Bible also says the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. We were in the same boat as those people Jesus was crying over. We were all destined for the same hell that they were because Jesus said in Luke 19, 44, talking about those people and why God's judgment was coming, it says, because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And I like the, the New Living Translation version. It says, because you have rejected the opportunity that God offered you. God offers everyone an opportunity. But for us believers, now by the grace of God, we didn't reject that opportunity. We accepted it. Hallelujah. Aren't you glad? Palm Sunday and Easter is all about accepting God's offer. What's the offer? You can almost repeat it after me, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, and he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. You don't think God loves you enough. God gave the, the only thing that would cost him. God has access to everything. He could have given anything for us. The Bible says he didn't do it by corruptible things as silver and gold, but by the blood of his precious son. If you don't believe that, then Jesus is still crying over you. He doesn't want you to suffer. Just as a parent, when you see your child making a mistake, going the wrong path, and you know where they're headed, you cry over them because you know where they're going. You know what's going to happen to them, and you do everything you can to bring them back. And you don't want your kids to suffer. I think most parents want them to have a better life than we had. And when they don't, because of their choices, we cry over them. Jesus sees our lives and the choices that we're making. And for those who have rejected him, he's crying still. 
He offers us, each of us, eternal life or heaven if we believe. We use the term eternal life. Well, everyone has eternal life. It's just where you choose to spend it. The question is, do you believe? Not, not only in here, to here. Here, you have a lot of knowledge about something, but not change your life. When you have knowledge in here, it transforms the way you think and the way you live and the things you believe. The Jews who would shout later, crucify him, believed in their heads. They saw everything. They be- I'm sure they believed in the miracles. I'm sure they believed in all the things he did. Didn't change them. You can walk around and you can know more of the Bible than anybody else. And you can believe everything about Jesus, but it doesn't change you. The Bible says, when you become a Christian, you become a new creation. The light bulb goes off in your head and now you get it. You don't understand everything about God, but you understand that there is a God and he loves you. That's what he understands. And that's what transforms your life and you begin to think differently. You begin to act differently. That is God's transformation. You want to see a great miracle? The biggest miracle you ever see is a transformed life. Someone who is a down and out sinner, which by the way is all of us, and then you come to Christ. He forgives you of all those sins and now he changes your heart and you don't want to do that anymore. The Bible says when we were before we were Christians, we were slaves to sin. We had to sin. That's all we knew how to do. But now you don't have to do that. When the temptation comes up, and it's going to come up, you, have, you want to not do it. That's the difference. When you were, before you came, became a Christian, when things came up and you knew you can get away with it, you were there. You were doing it. But now, you don't want to do it. Even if no one's watching you, you, now, you don't want to do it. That's the difference. The temptation's still there. The hard attitude is, you know what, I don't want to do that anymore. A great example is when you become a parent. Hopefully, you stop acting like you did when you were 20 because you're now a parent. You now have a different attitude, a different heart, and you want to now live for your kids. You're no longer living for yourself. When you become a Christian, you're no longer living for yourself. You're living for the Lord. And everything you do is for him because you know how much he's already given you. And man, I'm running late. And then my wife is going to shoot me. Will you close your eyes and bow your heads for a moment? Palm Sunday, Resurrection Day, easily the most significant holiday in world history way surpasses Christmas and every other holiday we celebrate because it's this one single event that determines each one of ours destiny. Jesus says, as many as believe in him, to those he gave the power or authority to become children of God. Not everyone is a child of God. The Bible says only to those who believe in what he did did he give the authority or the right to be called children of God. The Bible says these things are written that you may know you have eternal life. 
And the way you know you have eternal life is because you had, at some point in your life, you may not remember the exact day, but you know that there was a day that you said yes to Jesus. You felt that draw, you felt the Holy Spirit saying to you, this is the time to get right, you need to get right. And you did. And you either walked the aisle or you said a prayer or someone prayed with you, but you know that there was a date that you made that choice. On the flip side of that, if you have no recollection of any date that you made that choice and you've been living the way you've been living all of your life that you know of and nothing's ever transformed, then the Bible says, you know what, you're not a Christian. The Bible says examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. And that means you know because you made a commitment to Christ at some point in your life, you've made that choice. But now the choice is being offered to you. Maybe you, you don't remember a day, you don't think you had a day, and you don't, for the most part, you don't, you don't know much about God. But now the choice is being given. Again, you're not gonna know everything about the Bible there is to know. Nobody does. But you're gonna know the truth the light bulb's going to go off in your head and you're going to get it. The Bible says that Jesus stands at the doorway of your heart and he's knocking, wanting to come in. But you have to open that door for him. And you open that door by believing in your heart. The Bible says in Romans 10 that God raised him from the dead and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. That is what makes you right with God. And if that's you and you feel that nudge today, the Bible says that God's making you think about him in order for you to make the choice for yourself. If that's you and you want to be assured, you want to have that date written down in your mind that yes, this is the day that me and God got right. I want you to raise your hand. What better day to do that than the beginning of the last week of Jesus' life? All right, I'm going to believe that we are all committed followers of Christ then. Father, I thank you. I thank you for the sacrifice that you made and that you will make 2,000 years ago this Sunday or this Friday and the resurrection that proved to the world that you were who you said you were. And because of that resurrection, Father, we know that we will also be resurrected at some point in our life and that we will one day be with you as well. So Father, I pray your blessing upon each person here today. Allow them to leave having their hearts and minds transformed, not by what I said, but by your spirit in their life and the word of God to back up the things you're doing in their heart and their mind. I pray your blessings upon them and allow them to know you love them today. And it's in Jesus' name we ask all these things. And it's for his sake, honor, and glory that we commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. God bless you. Okay, Easter egg hunt. Unfortunately, it's downstairs, but still they hid all the eggs. The kids are going to find them.